0: On the far southeast side, on the border between Chicago's Hegwish neighborhood and the city of Hammond, Indiana, is a small lake called Wolf Lake. After decades of industrial pollution, the area is in recovery mode and is being maintained as part of the William W. Powers State Recreation Area. The EPA monitors the area for industrial polluters and conducts cleanup efforts in order to make the area a safer place to live. The lake itself is stocked with a variety of fish to make it a haven for local fishermen. You can even hunt waterfowl and deer out there, all within the city limits of Chicago. Back in the 1920s, before Chicago's industrial economy polluted the waters of Wolf Lake and the surrounding land, the area was a wildlife destination much like it is today. One particular enthusiastic visitor was a teenager named Nathan Leopold, which is maybe a name that sounds familiar to listeners of this podcast.
1: And those same listeners who recognize that name probably know that in addition to him, we're also going to be talking about his partner in murder, Loeb. Hello and welcome to Murderland Chicago, a deep dish of death. As you can probably already guess, today we are talking about the infamous duo of Leopold and Loeb, Why are we talking about Leopold and Loeb when they're not serial killers? First, Meredith and I talked about this when we started this podcast. There is no one singular definition of a serial killer. It is a term of art. Most people agree that a serial killer is an individual who kills more than one person with a cooling off period. But, some people, like Charles Manson, are considered to be serial killers even though they never killed anyone. And in a case like Leopold and Loeb, even though they only killed once, in committing their infamous murder, this disgusting duo gave birth to a trope that still lives on to this very day. Like we've said ad nauseum, serial killers are not special. <laughs> And this is extremely important because for too long, we've accepted this general notion that they're somehow special beings. They are quite literally horrible people, especially Leopold and Loeb. And I know we're going to get into this later, Meredith, but I really fucking hate them. <laughs> like They're just really horrible people. And as you probably already know, there are lots of horrible people in the world. 90% of your coworkers are probably those people. And what makes the individuals we discuss in this podcast different from your coworkers is that these people that we talk about found a way to get away with it. They were able to discover a glitch in the system and they exploited it, typically resulting in someone else's murder. No, Leopold and Loeb are not serial killers, but Their approach to killing would go forth and multiply in the multiple rich shitheads in the world obsessed with committing the, quote, perfect crime, unquote. Thousands of miles away and nearly a century later, the Menendez brothers would do the same thing by blowing apart their parents. Michael Peterson, Scott Peterson, Drew Peterson, basically any Peterson out there, (laughs) followed in Leopold and Loeb's footsteps. They wanted to be uber-mentioned, and to repeat a Nietzschean reference, they thought they were beyond good and evil, above the law, but they all failed miserably. So, let's get into it. There's been a lot of writing about Leopold and Loeb, and their story is basically known by every Chicagoan, but For this podcast, we are relying on the book Nothing But the Night by Greg King and Penny Wilson for the details of the murder, along with numerous other articles and accounts of their exploits later on at Joliet Prison and, spoiler alert, the Caribbean island of Puerto Rico.
0: But before we get to Puerto Rico, we have to go back to 1924. So in May of 1924, a couple of workers found the body of Bobby Franks in a culvert in Wolf Lake. In the flurry of activity to recover the body and bring it to the morgue, someone found a nearby pair of glasses and put them on Bobby's face. As it turned out, those glasses belonged to Nathan Leopold, who, along with his accomplice Richard Loeb, had killed Bobby Franks as part of that bizarre plan to commit the perfect crime. But despite Leopold and Loeb's delusion of grandeur, and despite the 1948 Hitchcock film that was inspired by their crimes, called Rope, the sequences of events surrounding the kidnapping and murder of Bobby Franks was less like a thriller and more like a Coen Brothers movie. (laughs) So, Jonathan, tell us what happened.
1: For the the most part, Leopold and Loeb are presented to us as these... Almost mythical genius characters. But when you actually know what happened, they are basically just any other type of bumbling comedic duo in just how stupidly they went about this. Nathan Leopold and Richard Lowe were two obnoxiously self-absorbed teenagers from extremely wealthy families in the city of Chicago. On May 21st, 1924, the two rented a car under a fake name, drove it to the Kenwood neighborhood of the south side of Chicago, where they actually both lived with their respective families, and circled the blocks looking for a victim. First rule of serial killing here, especially if you're a newbie, don't shit where you eat. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Right. When these two decide, no, let's kill someone in the very neighborhood where everyone knows us and where we've grown up with all of our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to, to mention here, just at the outset, Kenwood, the neighborhood, in the 1920s was not the Kenwood that we know today. Kenwood, at the time, was a bastion for wealthy Jewish families who were not allowed to live in the more tony north side neighborhoods of Lincoln Park and beyond.
0: Although Kenwood today is still populated by beautiful mansions, these mansions are comparatively run down by the standards set by the Northside and some of our wealthier suburbs. Uh, The streets are essentially empty. There's no neighborhood activity happening in Kenwood. And although it is a beautiful place to take people on a tour, it is an unsettling place to take a walk by yourself.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't walk there at night by myself. And I typically, you know, just kind of Chicago shorthand, the way that I usually refer to Kenwood when I'm talking to people is to say that it is the cheaper version of Hyde Park. It's the more dangerous version of Hyde Park. Would you agree with that?
0: I would say it is a more dangerous version of Hyde Park. I wouldn't say cheaper. I mean, those homes are expensive,
1: Mm -hmm. but
0: because there is nobody on the sidewalk, there's nobody to help you if you get in trouble. I mean, even if you just take a fall and break your ankle, there's nobody there to help you.
1: Well, that's a good point. But back in the day, um, there were lots of people on the streets because Kenwood was a, like we said, wealthy up-and-coming neighborhood in Chicago. And in the end, it was Bobby Frank's bad luck to be out on the sidewalk shortly after school that fateful day where his cousin Richard Loeb picked him up with the promise of a quick car ride home. That's right, the murder victim that they decided to pick up was his very own cousin. Bobby Frank's Obviously, hopped into the passenger side seat of the car because he did not know that Nathan Leopold was actually waiting for him in the back seat, armed with a brand new chisel. Leopold attacked Bobby from behind, then dragged him into the back seat like a scene out of Nightmare on Elm Street. With the back seat of the rental car now bathed in blood, Richard Loeb drove to Wolf Lake, where they removed Bobby's clothing and tucked his body in the culvert. Neither killer noticed that Leopold's glasses had fallen out of his pocket during the ordeal. Leopold and Loeb would then return to Kenwood and attempted to clean the blood out of the car. This screams newbie, Meredith, because obviously these two did not know how much blood is in the human body. And the fact that they thought, oh yeah, let's just rent a car and kill my cousin. Bobby Franks himself is an accidental victim. They're just riding around the streets looking for a victim and realize, hey, I know this kid. The fact that they had a cousin relationship probably was of zero importance whatsoever to them. Because at the end of the day, their goal was to kill someone. Back at home, they're trying to clean the back of this rental car. Again, a rental car they're going to have to give back to someone else. Obviously, they did not succeed. In the middle of the night, they threw the murder weapon into the middle of a Kenwood street, and then they called Bobby Frank's parents and demanded a ransom for the safe return of Bobby. Obviously, they're trying to make this look like this is a kidnapping gone wrong, but this is just the stupidest way for two self-purported and also media-purported geniuses to go about committing the quote-unquote perfect crime.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And because Bobby Franks came from a wealthy family and because he was a child victim, this case was closely followed by the media. Mm -hmm. So remember, this is 1924 Chicago, where crime reporting is entertainment. It's the same year when Beulah Annan and Belva Gartner were both tried for murdering their respective husbands. And that is the story that was later adapted to become the musical Chicago. So just imagine that musical in the background.
1: <laughs> Renee Zellweger and Kevin Zeta-Jones just dancing their hearts out. Yeah.
0: We're in Prohibition Era, Chicago. Al Capone is not in charge yet, but he mm-hmm. is getting there. Jazz age. The papers must sell. So this is the environment we're in. And because of that, reporters actually camp out just across the street from the Bobby Franks home. They harass his grieving family, and they are generally being a nuisance to the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, it's really good that we make that reference to the musical Chicago because the idea of crime as spectacle is the heart of that musical, but it is also the heart of media in Chicago. There is kind of a secret pride that I think most Chicagoans have about being from a city where there is so much crime. It's almost as if it forms part of our identity because we kind of like the fact it, it gives us some street cred, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And back in the 1920s, Chicagoans were no different. They liked the gory details because the gory details reemphasized this narrative of Chicago as a city just for tough guys and gals where yeah. only the strong could survive.
0: Yeah, those broad shoulders. So you can imagine in this environment, the pressure was on for the local police.
1: Yeah. This is also a missing white kid. Let's let's put it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's missing white kid from a very wealthy family. And he was just 14. And he was small for his age. Yeah. According to nothing but the night, the investigation was carefully handled. Mm-hmm. And so no surprise there. He's got these privilege markers. Yeah. So it was carefully handled. That was good. They built a very strong case, starting with the pair of glasses that were found near Bobby's body. Mm -hmm. In short, we're glossing over a lot. This pair of glasses had a specific type of hinge that was new and rare. It was so rare, in fact, that only three pairs of glasses with that hinge had been sold so far in the Chicagoland area. Two pairs of the glasses were quickly found and their owners were cleared from any involvement in this murder. The police knew that they had a situation on their hands when they traced the third pair to Nathan Leopold, who they knew lived in Kenwood and was a close associate of Bobby's second cousin, Richard Loeb. In a long story cut very short, police brought both Leopold and Loeb in for questioning, and within hours, they had collected confessions from both of them. Then they were each tried and convicted for murder. Spoiler alert. Sorry.
1: So back to what makes this case such an interesting one for us is that, first of all, Meredith and I share a very deep, intimate connection (laughs) with both Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, because we all went to... The University of Chicago. And in so, we experienced firsthand the type of privileged students that the school attracts. It was an intense experience to go from working class communities to living and learning with a bunch of people who come from money, money. We're not talking like, oh, uh, my family has enough money to go on vacation to (laughs) Disney World. We're talking Families that give their children trusts, that buy their kids condos for the four years that they are at school, that automatically come to campus driving new Mercedes cars, and that this is not even a bragging point for them. This is just life, and that's exactly the type of environment the University of Chicago was a 100 years ago, was 15-odd years ago when we went there, right? And I'm gonna argue is still that way today. Even though <laughs> this is probably one of the most frustrating things, is that most people don't even know what the University of Chicago is. Do you find yourself explaining to people what the University of Chicago is?
0: I don't talk to people. <laughs> I don't t- to anybody. <laughs> For me.
1: I, I talk to a lot of people. Whenever I have to talk about where I went to college, I'm going to say, especially here on the West Coast, no one knows what the University of Chicago is or even knows the quote unquote prestige that is kind of connected with its brand. It's kind of a, a mindfuck to be here and to tell people, Oh, I went to U Chicago and for them not to respond with a, huh? such a great school. Because that's part of the course in right. the Midwest. The fact that these two were affiliated with the university, I think, says a lot about who they were, because even though we're talking about a century ago, the university has not changed. Okay, (laughs) And, you know, the type of student that goes there, you know, they're not, this is something that I also, you know, I'm going to go on a brief little tangent, but I think it's related here, is that. It's probably only a couple of years ago when I actually realized what the term liberal arts means. Meredith, do you know what this means?
0: That's just uh, a little bit of everything.
1: That's kind of how we've interpreted it yeah. contemporarily, right? Mm-hmm. But the actual meaning of the term liberal arts comes from the Roman Empire. And basically the idea is that you are the child of a free person. So you're not the child of a slave. Mm-hmm. So you can study things that have no actual skill involved. You're kidding me. Yeah. That's what oh, it means. Wow. So you don't you're not encouraged to learn a skill because you don't have to work for money. Okay? And that's exactly what liberal arts means. So when you go to a liberal arts bastion like the University of Chicago, the whole concept and the reason why everyone there is like, yes, just learn what you love. Don't worry about money is because the actual crux of a liberal arts education is that it is not supposed to result in any type of economic benefit because you come from a family that provides an economic benefit for you. And that's exactly the type of students that Leopold and Loeb both were.
0: I wish I'd known that when I was 18.
1: Oh, same. So... (laughs) If you're if you're if you're a teenager listening to this and you're thinking about going to college, please know that the term liberal arts is a trap and it is not for individuals who come from working class backgrounds who need to have a skill set in order to be able to be employed. It is definitely for kids who are rich who have trust funds. That's who it's built for. Oh my
0: gosh. But, uh, you're you're putting some puzzle pieces together for me right now. <laughs> But it's true, like you're right, that growing up, as we did, more blue collar yeah. set us up for a different experience in that environment. Mm-hmm. And we were learning the same things in class that our much more wealthy, much more privileged classmates were learning. But we took different lessons from it. Yeah. Um, I remember I got a, a quick story. And this one is burned into my mind. You know, most of what happened when I was 18, 19 is completely gone from my memory. Purged, purged. But this one stuck around. <laughs> it's an unpleasant memory. So now you must share the burden. Um, the setting here is the dining hall. And you, you've mm-hmm. got these long tables. Everybody is just communal eating. And I was getting lunch with Laura. So you know Laura. She did the artwork for this podcast. Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so Laura and I were talking and this guy from another house in the same dormitory, he had joined us. And this is still early enough in college where nobody knew each other. Nobody had a reputation. Everybody's just being nice because you don't know who's going to be your ne- next best friend. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're talking with this guy. Laura grew up like we did.
1: Yeah. Which I also think was not an accident. Having worked in higher ed administration, mm-hmm. now know that what universities typically do is they will stick all of the kind of scholarship kids together. Oh. <laughs> so and, that, and here think. we are
0: 20 years later, best friends. <laughs> I
1: know. So Actually, maybe it wasn't a bad thing. But No, you absolutely.
0: Know, yeah. Yeah. But back then, Laura and this guy were talking about economics. Okay. Mm. I had – I had not taken economics. I didn't know economics. I didn't know anything about it. Okay. But looking back at it, I, I understand something. So I'm going to tell you this from my vantage point of, of now, of like understanding more of what was going on in that conversation. They were talking about when in a community that has economic disadvantage, let's say like the town factory closed down, it's like an economic principle that the people who live there who were formerly employed by that factory can move to another area for better job prospects. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the theory. And I have since heard that. It's like, yeah, economic mobility, go to where the jobs are. It's kind of what happened in the gold rush. Everybody went out to California because that's where opportunity was.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Laura, who came from a background similar to ours, had lived that experience And she was telling this guy, I was like, no, that's not what people do. They can't afford to move. Right. Lots of people just can't just pick up and go. We have responsibilities, mortgages. You can't get rid of the house. You got kids. You just like don't have the money or support system to go. Mm -hmm. And that's where the tension was in that conversation. This guy, he was just like, but that's not the optimal thing. And Laura's like, but people genuinely can't get out of this situation i remember she was so frustrated she was almost crying and this guy just was basically he wasn't literally plugging his ears and going la 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 but he might as well have been doing that it was very uncomfortable
1: i think i even know who this person was and if memory serves he was also the person who during college bought a factory in eastern europe at some point
0: (laughs) did he let's let's take this offline because let's have that gossip but i don't want to name him
1: no yeah he was a horrible person okay and so i yeah we'll we'll go offline and we'll talk more about
0: that that. okay but the analogy that i'm i'm drawing here is that that guy was an obnoxious asshole yeah and Leopold and Loeb both came from wealth like that. They Mm -hmm. were privately tutored. They had read all of those books and they showed up at college when they were kids. So Loeb started when he was 14 years old at the University of Chicago and Leopold started at age 15.
1: Leopold and Loeb sound exactly like the person who shall remain nameless, but not just him, but so many other students that go to colleges of prestige. And I'm sure that if you're listening to this and you yourself have, you know, some type of connection or relationship or an alumnus or alumna from a prestigious university, you ran into individuals like this, people who came from backgrounds where they were basically untouchable. Because they'd always lived with that bubble around them, there was a confidence that they had in the way they spoke that when you are 18 years old, 19 years old, going into college for your first time, and you're nervous because y- you might be the first person in your family to go to college, or you might just be a person who is actually considerate of others.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Thinks before they talk, it is very easy to get wrapped up in the myth that these people who are super confident in their ignorance are somehow smarter than everyone else mm-hmm. and two things that I really want us to kind of break open today one Leopold and Loeb were a couple of brats these are not uber whatsoever they were scared little twerps okay but the second one is what every kind of like glib coverage Of this case, whether you look at podcasts that kind of just talk about serial murder, or if you look at, you know, websites, etc., they always refer to the two as prodigies. And I take offense at that, okay, because the idea that intelligence can be somehow assessed by an iq test is completely fucking false the core of intelligence is the ability to be able to analyze information and to create connections that's really what we're saying okay but the way that we are able to interpret and to be able to assess that ability is very much a sociocultural phenomenon so The reason why kids who go to super expensive private schools are considered to be quote unquote more intelligent is because they have been coded with the ways to communicate those connections in ways that are understood, accepted, and lauded by general society. It doesn't actually mean that they're smarter than anyone else. So in the case of the University of Chicago, you have two kind of tropes. You have the really rich asshole, but you also have the completely isolated, can't talk to anybody, but also probably comes from a lot of money and is studying something that is extremely extremely niche that will serve no purpose whatsoever in society but they know they can continue to study it because they have a trust fund right Mm -hmm. I always think about this one time when I was first at the University of Chicago and I saw someone reading a book and I wanted to know more about it so I went up to that person and I asked hey you know what's that book that you're reading they looked at me closed their book and ran away (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> but you this- were not intimidating when oh, you were 18. Oh, no, I know You I did were not, not like this broad-shoulder, no. like thick-bearded... You looked like a kid.
1: <laughs> I very much so, you know, but but this was obviously U Chicago, right? And yeah. there is that type of person that goes to U Chicago yeah. who is an antisocial nerd. Mm-hmm. And I think when we see Leopold and Loeb, they kind of had a little from column A, they were kind of obnoxious rich assholes, but they were also had a lot from column B, which is mm-hmm. that they were pretty socially inept. They had no idea how to really interact with other people. So even though they're at this world-class university, who do they end up becoming friends with? Each other. Nobody. They're just friends with each other. And I know you and I know this type of person because we went to school with them. They were just friends with one person, and that was it. And this is exactly what happens with the two of them. So because they are not being challenged by anybody else, they're basically creating this feedback loop of bullshit that they end up feeding to each other and gobbling up because there's no one to tell them differently. Now, sometimes, you know, me and my sister, we talk about this a lot because she has a three year old now and she's really trying to right a lot of the generational wrongs right of our family because You know, we came from a blue collar background and like people did not treat kids like they were precious, you know. And, you know, I know that a lot of people of our generation and from our kind of socioeconomic background, you know, we have memories of our parents and family members telling us some like basically being bullied Mm -hmm. (laughs) by by our family, right? Yeah. (laughs) Now, even though that sounds horrible to some people, there is an actual social benefit to that. Obviously everything in everything in moderation, right? right. Like there there is a tipping point. You know what I'm saying?
0: You're not advocating for bullying your children.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. Please do not take this as me saying go bully your children. Um, leave your children alone. Okay. But there is something positive about having another voice in the room that's not just telling you, you walk on water, everything you do is fucking magic. Because yeah. You have a case like Leopold and Loeb where they were basically able to insulate themselves from any external criticism because they had each other. And mm-hmm. then when they weren't with each other, they were with their families who were basically just feeding them the same bullshit. You're the smartest. You're the greatest, etc., etc. So it's no surprise that these two are going to end up convincing each other that they are capable of committing the perfect crime yes they grew up in the same neighborhood and were kind of stuck with each other at first but because of their a immense privilege and b inability to be able to interact with anyone outside of that circle they begin to develop an intense bond that cannot be separated
0: and at this point, it'll be helpful, I think, to understand a little bit more about their personalities and why they were the way they were beyond growing up with privilege and wealth. So, Nathan Leopold, we'll start with him. He was short, obnoxious, socially awkward. You just said all these things. His <laughs> primary hobby is bird watching and bird taxidermy. That's his thing. People know oh that God. he's he's yeah. got the birds and they, they come to him and like, oh, what's this bird? As
1: a child, I think we highlight that point, right? That this, we're not talking about someone who's retired.
0: <laughs> right. He's deep yeah. in it. He's like become an expert on birds. Yeah. So he spends a lot of time in parks, wilderness areas and the like all around the city, including Wolf Lake for that hobby. Now, his parents had immigrated from Germany and made a fortune in shipping. So they were the kind of family that employed a governess. And a governess, <laughs> for folks who don't know, because I had to look it up, they're kind of a blend between <laughs> a nanny and a tutor. Basically, somebody to raise your children for you. Now, according to Nothing But the Night, this governess sexually abused Leopold when he was just 12 years old. Yeah. Okay. And that, that is terrible and wrong and awful. Also very bright. But if I can just
1: interrupt there, even though it's horrible and awful, it's also alleged abuse. Mm -hmm. And we'll go into this a little bit further, but a lot of what we know about Leopold and Loeb comes out from the defense of their trial, where I'm going to argue a lot of questionable things were put out there as last-ditch efforts.
0: That's fair. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: Yeah, so we don't we don't exactly know what occurred when he was twelve years old. Um and obviously the governess herself was never tried. So this is this is this is a version of the story that we, you know, are are including because it is something that has been reported often when people talk about Leopold.
0: Exactly. Yes, that's a great point. Richard Loeb, on the other hand, he was also very bright and even though he was awkward, he was not as socially awkward as Leopold, okay? Richard yeah. Loeb had friends. He had a few friends. Mm-hmm. People knew him. His father was a senior executive at Sears Roebuck, and his family's wealth made Leopold's family look like they were middle class. All right? Just like, m- you said money, money before? is like money, money, <laughs> money. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But Loeb also has his problems, okay? He has been fantasizing about becoming a master criminal since early childhood and beyond the fantasy, which is fantasies are fine, he's been putting that into action and has been committing petty theft and arson Mm.
1: by the time
0: he gets to college. He didn't face any consequences. He never got caught for any of it. Yeah. However... And this is a claim made by nothing but the knight. He's also a people pleaser, Mm -hmm. which means that it's easy for people to like him because he's bad with boundaries. Yep. Okay. And that's foreshadowing. Being a people pleaser is incompatible with establishing and maintaining personal boundaries. Yeah. As you said, Leopold and Loeb got to be friends when they were both undergrads at the U of C. And here we see a little bit of divergence in their paths. Mm -hmm. Leopold had no problem with classes. He was academically gifted and thrived in that atmosphere. But Loeb, he had problems keeping up and he developed a severe drinking problem. Mm -hmm. So he transfers out to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor.
1: Yeah, so I think one of the things that... For me, is really interesting here is that there was – when people say like, oh, like this crime came out of nowhere, it actually didn't. There were plenty of signs coming up to this point, and it makes me remember when I worked as a social worker for Chicago Public Schools. One of the things that we would always talk about is that the poorer the child, the more extensive the record is going to be. The more wealthy the child, you will never see anything on that record. And the reason why is because if your family comes from privilege, they're able to make all of that go away. Yeah. And so it's, it, this is, this is shit that ingrains us from kindergarten. And I think people don't even realize that as soon as you enter into a school, if you are from a family that has no resources, you are at the mercy of the system. From the day you cross into that public school, because whatever they have on you, that can be used in any court in the entire country. You know, the the, the difference here is that Leopold and Loeb, even though they have some behaviors that leading up to this point, you know, could have indicated to people, yo, you got a sociopath on your hands. They are able to come into the situation completely spotless from an official perspective because nothing has ever been recorded about the two. I think it's really important here, like you said, this divergence because in any type of toxic relationship when you have two people kind of splitting the road the normal healthy response at that point is to say i love you let go right let go let god all right (laughs) but when you're caught in a codependent relationship you can't let that person go because that other person is helping you define yourself and that's exactly what we see here because of the fact that Loeb has a, a burgeoning alcohol problem, Leopold could not let go. And in a really bad Brokeback Mountain imitation. He just couldn't quit him. I, that was horrible. I can't do that accent. <laughs> I
0: can't do that accent. You did a good job. You did but a good job. But everyone gets
1: the point. Everyone gets the yeah. point. He could not quit him. All right? So basically, the what, should, what could have been the end of this story, all right? Yeah. Because honestly, had they not stayed in each other's life, there is a world where neither one of them would have done this. Okay, Exactly. But Leopold could not stand the fact that Loeb had moved away. It's like seeing everything that you have ever had in your life just poof, vanish. And Leopold, because he was the more awkward one, did not have other friends to fall back on. And without a buddy to run around town and listen to all of his self-serving bullshit, he was just left with himself. But, Loeb's family is still living in Chicago. They live just north of Hyde Park in the Kenwood neighborhood, close by to where the Obamas lived before Obama was elected president. And, obviously, he's going back home periodically. Leopold... Gloms onto Loeb on one of these visits and takes the train back up to Michigan with Loeb. And if you're getting a little bit of a broke back Mountain feeling here, uh, you are not wrong. Because no teenage boy is going to be doing this for his friend if there was not something else going on. So it's during this train ride that... He claimed that the two of them really had a heart-to-heart and trauma dumped all over each other. So why is this a big deal? Because part of Nathan Leopold's trauma, in addition to the sexual abuse from his governess, allegedly, is that he is gay and he could not live authentically. He's in the closet because A, he's a socially awkward teen, but B, he's growing up in a very wealthy family that's also C, Jewish, and will not accept him being out. Loeb also has his share of trauma and secrets, including fantasies about becoming a master criminal one day. So, Now the two of them are locked into this delicious death spiral of codependency because none of what Loeb shared would put his life and social standing at risk if others knew. Basically, Leopold is at the beck and call of Loeb because Leopold cannot survive anyone finding out that he's actually gay.
0: And the worst that would happen to Loeb? If somebody found out about his secrets is that he would be embarrassed for a little while, but Mm -hmm. eventually folks would forget, you know, for a few family gatherings, it would be like, oh, better watch out. We got a master criminal coming to dinner. But yeah, it would quickly be replaced by other gossip, like rich people just don't care about what Loeb's got going on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, since Leopold basically told Loeb that he's gay, he can't afford to let Loeb go and he can't afford to have a falling out. Because Loeb's got this now hanging Mm -hmm. over Leopold. But that's a little later on in the story. Just at this point, they've been on the train. They've just shared their secrets with each other. And maybe they did some exploring.
1: We know this because apparently on this trip to Michigan, this is the first time that they had sex. Which is something that they both mutually agree and that has been supported by both of their accounts. Leopold, as we know, was already actively attracted to men. But Loeb was actually more asexual. And the more we hear about Loeb, the more we kind of start to realize that he does fit all of the classic hallmarks of a sociopath. he It's, it's not like he had a bisexuality or a heterosexuality or a homosexuality. It really was asexual for him. Sex for him was really more about power. And even though that was the case, he was enthusiastically participating in this relationship, but everything was instigated by Leopold. Why? Because this is where being a gay man helps, okay? Leopold's in love with Loeb. You know what I'm saying? This is his first gay crush. Like, I still remember my first gay crush, I used to put chapstick on his lips. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> I just I just wanted to, to take care of him. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So I, I don't want to make it sound as if, you know, somehow, you know, Leopold is the sexual aggressor here, right? It's not that he's instigating it in a way that is trying to be coercive. He is instigating it in a way that is very much romantically based. (laughs) He is in love with this man. And because he doesn't understand what love is yet, he is basically just trying to do everything to keep him in his life.
0: And remember that they're still teenagers. So everything they're feeling is just dialed up to 11. Yep. Pretty soon, Loeb graduates from the University of Michigan. He was 17 when he graduates with his undergrad degree. Leopold graduates from the University of Chicago, and then both of them move back to their family homes, aka those mansions that they <laughs> live in, in Kenwood. Yeah. Okay, because there's no reason for them to set up their own household. yet. Both of them also enroll in graduate school at the U of C.
1: Yeah. And I, I feel like this is the plot line to like any you know, romantic comedy post-college, because they're both basically upper-class privileged kids who don't have to worry about a job because they're both just at home. You know, when I read the story, it was like, okay, yeah, sure, they're both in graduate school. Why do they have all this time on their hands? And then I just had to remember, oh, yeah, because they didn't need to work. They're basically able to just hang out at home. And between their boredom and their undeserved feeling of superiority, they end up with this interesting mix of malignant narcissism and depression that continues to plague the idle rich to this very day. And they keep with each other because nobody else is in their situation. All the other 17 to 18 year olds they know are just entering their first year of college and having a great time. So it's another... Nail in the alienation coffin. And I think, you know, I, I skipped a, a couple grades when I was in elementary school. Fancy. and And, uh, you know, my... <laughs> I mean, a lot, a lot of kids that went to Chicago did, right? Yeah. And I think one of the really dangerous parts of skipping grades, and it's one of the reasons why I really hate all those news stories that are like, 13-year-old graduates from Harvard University. Because for some reason, we have this idea... In society that skipping grades is somehow advantageous, but it is never advantageous to the actual kid. It is only advantageous in that it provides bragging rights to the parents. That is it. So and I think you have Leopold and Loeb where, you know, obviously their parents probably were pushing them every step of the way to excel academically. Obviously, you know, Loeb is being sent from one expensive university to the other with no attempt to really cure his alcoholism. I'm sorry, your kid comes up to you and says, I might have an alcohol problem and you're going to send them further away from home. (laughs) (laughs) it's not a great response these two kids you know they're they're being pushed and their parents probably were super proud of the fact that their kids finished college at such an early age without even realizing the long-term implications and consequences of that namely that these two kids are never going to be able to interact with people They're not at the same level. So I'm sorry. If you're 13 years old and you graduate from Berkeley and are about to start working for SpaceX, I feel bad for you because your parents basically just fucked you over so they could catch a cheap headline.
0: And there's no kind of safety net to catch them because graduate school isn't focused on the social experience like undergrad is. No. So you get all sorts of ages, all sorts of life situations. People are setting up their families. Others are in between jobs. You've got these former child prodigies hanging out with their wealthy families. So you're right. It's Leopold and Loeb against the world again. Essentially, they're out there committing petty theft, doing arson, escalating burglary, (laughs) and also like living it up on the town right prohibition era jazz clubs all the things they're still too young to drink but that's meaningless because it's prohibition but they're going out and getting drunk all the time so and they're living at home with their parents and their butlers and their housekeepers and their personal chauffeurs Mm -hmm. so what happens jonathan what's what does this mix (laughs) result in
1: what happens is what always happens they get sick of each other Or more like Richard Loeb, who, remember, he is the one who can actually get other friends. He gets sick of Leopold and his obsession with Nietzsche's stupid fucking ubermensch, which totally makes sense, but we'll get into later. Again, no one is special, you know? But my grandfather, that was like his biggest insult to all of us as grandkids, was that you are not special. Anything that you feel has already been felt by somebody else. And... It's harsh, but it's true. At the end of the day, Leopold and Loeb are not special. They are two friends who are outgrowing each other. But this is complicated by the fact that one is in love with the other, and the other has a secret that can completely ruin the other's life. How will he keep his man? We're in Chicago, so the answer is always obviously going to be murder.
0: It's time for murder, but first we have to explain (laughs) what an ubermensch is. Can you walk us through that?
1: Sure, yeah. If you don't know what an ubermensch is, it's probably because you um, have never read Nietzsche. And consider yourself lucky for that because (laughs) if you've never read Nietzsche, you've probably never then had to subsequently discuss it in class with an alpha male Ayn Rand objectivist who loves this philosophy because it justifies their socioeconomic privilege. To put it very briefly, there was a philosopher by the name of Nietzsche who came up with the idea of the ubermensch or superior man. Ubermensch is basically a German word. Uber means obviously like very or over and mensch means man. And according to Nietzsche, the ubermensch would be a man who learned to master himself and reject Christian morality in favor of his own personal values that are rooted on earth, not in heaven. And Uberbench would be a man who is so smart that he doesn't need religion to tell him how to behave, and he can live by his own inherently superior moral code. And I think it's important to put forth that, as you've mentioned a couple times here already, Meredith, we're in the 1920s. And this is before the Great Depression, and people are still flying high economically. The Horatio Alger myth that you can come from rags and come out with riches is still rife. And this Nietzschean philosophy entrenches itself into the American psyche through the vehicles of exceptionalism and individualism, meaning that Everyone thinks they're special, and everyone thinks that they're exceptional. So Leopold and Loeb obviously are soaking all of this shit up like nasty sponges. (laughs) But because they lack any critical thinking, they just let it all fester inside of them.
0: And I want to go a little bit deeper into Nietzsche. um, Yeah. Because like all of the philosophers uh, I've read, at least... He was apparently just exploring some deep thoughts and writing them down in an authoritative tone. That's what I learned in undergrad, and I got my degree in philosophy there.
1: Yeah, you know. I mean, no way am I trying to critique Nietzsche here. Nietzsche was actually, like, had some really great thoughts, okay? The problem is in the application and how people have digested what he wrote.
0: Yeah, You know better than anyone else. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll tell you what I learned through living and working in the white collar environment for the past 20 years is if you say or write anything with confidence, most people are just going to go with it. You can just speak with confidence on a topic that you have absolutely no expertise in and a room of highly educated adults will more often than not, just go with it. When mm-hmm. someone speaks with confidence, it's just so easy to believe what they're saying. And mm-hmm. that is exactly why con men are called con men. It's short for confidence man because these folks are scam artists who lure you in because of their confidence.
1: I was today years old when I learned that. So thank you, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, though.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just it's all confidence. So, mm-hmm. and and here's another thing: most philosophy is just a bunch of thought experiments that are written down, and then other philosophers write their own responses, bills, criticisms, and reactions. So, in order to understand what anyone is trying to say, you have to understand them in the context of the entire community conversation. That was going on at the time.
1: Yeah, I I love that because I think that's the part that people miss, right? That this is supposed to be a conversation. Exactly. Nothing that they write is supposed to be kind of authoritatively put out there as being the end all be all. But that's typically how it's being used.
0: Yeah. Just because it's written down doesn't make it better or more polished. Yeah. It's a lot like today's rapid meme evolution. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've seen this. some memes go viral despite apparently not making any sense, but they do make sense. It's just that an Internet cartoon is referencing a tweet that references a Tumblr post that references <laughs> a piece of fan fiction. And you have to understand the whole chain to understand the one viral meme. And philosophy yeah. is that. That is philosophy. You just can't pick up Nietzsche Read the concept of the Ubermensch. Think to yourself that you're pretty smart. You've rejected religion. You're doing a bunch of stupid (laughs) crimes and getting away with it. And oh, wow, you must be an Ubermensch. You're clearly the superior man. No other 18-year-old man has ever felt this level of superiority before in the history of mankind. Like they needed your grandfather's. Meredith,
1: I have never. I I'm so happy that you have a philosophy degree. You know what I'm saying, and that you can dissect this because I see it. I I see it all the time in people who they read Nietzsche for the first time. They read Ayn Rand even because I mean, also let's. I, I'm not here trying to like you know shit on everybody, right? Like Ayn Rand also, you know. Fountainhead is not a bad book. You know what I'm saying? Like she had some interesting ideas, but none of these ideas should ever be understood in a vacuum, right? And they're dangerous when you separate them from their context. It's exactly why Loeb was super fucking sick of Leopold, because he would not shut the fuck up about this Uber Mensch shit. Leopold obviously noticed that Loeb was pulling away, and that causes him to panic even more. I understand the precariousness of his situation as being a young gay teenager in love with this guy and his kind of clinging on to this philosophy to justify how he is different from other heterosexual men. But he's in an echo chamber and he doesn't have anyone to help contextualize the information that he is receiving. So at the end, it's all just self-serving. In his panic, you know, they always say social work 101, right? You should never respond when you are in a state of fear or panic. Those are when you make the worst decisions possible. And Loeb is all that Leopold had. He's the only person that was even giving him the time of day, the only person he's ever had sex with, and the only person who would have ever put up with him. During this time, they're just not getting along and Leopold spirals further into despair. Loeb is pulling away. His friends and family have been telling him to drop that weirdo Leopold because there are rumors abound that they're gay lovers. And it's having a bad impact on Loeb's social reputation and most likely his family's as well. Meanwhile, Leopold is pulling out every manipulative trick in the book to keep them together and taking advantage of Loeb's people-pleasing traits. Eventually, they negotiate a deal. The deal covers every aspect of the relationship, including how many times a week that they're going to have sex. Leopold wants more. Loeb has lost interest, but is willing to keep on going along with it. And because they've already committed plenty of small-time crimes together, they agree in this deal that they'll plan and commit a perfect crime, namely committing a kidnapping for ransom, collect that ransom, and get away with it by killing the person they kidnap. I know this is not the same thing, Meredith, but I feel like this is how I feel every time I talk to someone who has found a new and interesting way to keep their relationship alive where they're like, "Well, yeah, I know that <laughs> this is happening, but th- we've we've worked it out in a way so that we we we're both ba- we're both basically getting our needs met." And you're like, "No, that's just some really complicated lies that you're telling yourself to make yourself feel better about the fact that your relationship is dying." Also, the fact that they put a contract together goes to show what a couple of fucking dumbasses these two are. Because they think they're so smart. My grandparents were wise beyond their fucking years, right? But yeah. one thing that my grandmother would always say is that the smarter you are, the more dumb you become, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think that she that she read the room perfectly when it came to Leopold and Loeb. Yes. They think they're so smart that they have basically done the dumbest thing in the entire world, including putting it <laughs> into writing, you know, <laughs> their intent oh, yeah.
0: to commit a crime. The perfect crime. The perfect crime perfect crime. It's super dumb. I agree 100%. The let's recapture our early love by committing a murder. (laughs) Come
1: on. All right. It's so antithetical to the straight relationship. We're going to have a baby to save the relationship, right? That's
0: exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: It's just the inverse of that.
0: So they plan this crime, this perfect crime. But based on nothing but the night, it was really more of an idle sketch. Of what a plan could be. Yeah. So let's bullet point it. All right. So this plan was buy a murder weapon, <laughs> a chisel, in a shop on Cottage Grove Avenue, just blocks from where your well-known family lives. Go to ridiculous lengths yeah. to rent a luxury car by setting up a false identity as an out-of-town businessman, faking a reference for that car rental. And doing a trial run slash joyride around the city to ensure that renting a car is feasible. Right? Because renting the car is the (laughs) important part. Okay. Approach And also the fact that they're
1: renting a luxury car. Obviously, people are going to remember a luxury car. No one remembers how many Hondas go down the street. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But, you know, everyone remembers how many Lamborghinis they've seen in the week. You know? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The next point in your plan is approach multiple young boys in Kenwood, the neighborhood where your well-known family lives, with obvious attempts to lure them somewhere. Then, when your attempts at luring city-savvy kids fails, drive around Kenwood aimlessly until you spot your own 14-year-old second cousin, Bobby Franks, walking home from school and... Lure your mother's cousin's baby boy into your ridiculous luxury car under the pretense of asking a few questions about his tennis racket, which, of course, you know that he is interested in because you just played tennis with him a few days ago. Next, attack and kill Bobby, resulting in a bloodbath in the rental car. Then drive from Kenwood all the way out to Wolf Lake to leave Bobby's body out there because you think that nobody else frequents the area. Leave your glasses with Bobby's body. Be conspicuously absent from Kenwood as Bobby's parents raise the alarm and organize a search party for their missing son. Attempt to lead Bobby's parents on a wild goose chase to deliver ransom money. Drive around Kenwood in the middle of the night and throw the murder weapon that you purchased a couple of days ago out the window in the middle of the street. Next! Attempt to clean the blood out of the rental car. Fail. Get caught in the act of cleaning by the family chauffeur who is flabbergasted that you would ever deign to clean a vehicle. Claim that you were bootlegging yeah, goes- and that the stains are from a wine spill.
1: But just goes to show you how much of little assholes they were. The domestic workers in their house are like, you're touching a rag? Like, that's such a huge uh-huh. red flag for them. You know?
0: Yep. Next, return the rental car. Followed by, remain completely confident that you will not get caught. Finally, (laughs) and this one's Leopold, display a shocked Pikachu face when people-pleasing Loeb confesses to the murder.
1: Yeah, a couple of regular Chicago murderous masterminds here. Uh, The two things here that really get my guff, okay? One is the fact that they thought that Wolf Lake- that no one would go to it. Wolf Lake is busy. It always has been. Like you had mentioned before, it's a place for birding, fishing, and just general hanging out. Another dim-witted Chicago murderer will also use this lake as a dumping ground while operating under the similar wrong assumption that few people go there, when in fact, I mean, maybe it's just because they're going there on off hours, but everyone's uncle goes to that lake to go fish. And they're operating under the assumption that, oh, if we find a place that, you know, might be off the trail a little bit, that the body is somehow going to be undiscoverable. No, dipshits. It's in water. Water is going to move the body towards another shore, which inevitably means it's going to be discovered by someone. And second, I know you've already mentioned about the glasses, but we, we have to highlight the glasses again, Okay. Because this was the major clue that connected Leopold and Loeb to the murder. Why? Because these were two rich kids who were only accustomed to the best and the most expensive. So those glasses, there's a reason why they only were bought by three individuals in the city of Chicago. It's because they were incredibly expensive. And the part that... The part that just kills me is the fact that he didn't need those glasses. Okay? He didn't use them regularly. Okay? The only reason why he had those glasses on him was because he was wearing his birding suit at the time. Okay? And he had left the glasses in there because he used them when he went to go birding. So... He loses the glasses, and because he thinks that these glasses are just what everyone else has, he's not worried. Because he thinks they'll never be able to connect him to that set of glasses. And that just goes to show how privileged he was. That he thought this super expensive pair of glasses could be owned by the average Chicagoan, when in fact, they were only owned by three people in the entire fucking city.
0: It's a bit ironic that these two former child prodigies were so inept at understanding the world around them, right? It's what makes this whole thing like a Coen Brothers movie. It's when you look behind the official curtain or story of Leopold and Loeb, all you find are a couple of self-absorbed banal idiots propped up by their family's wealth and privilege and stumbling from one bad idea to another.
1: Yeah, and one part of this that to me is just really pathetic is that there is still uncertainty to this day as to who killed Bobby Franks. And that's because neither Nathan Leopold or Richard Loeb ever took responsibility for it and continue to blame each other for the murder. So there are officially two versions of what happened. One where Loeb is driving the car and one where... Leopold is driving the car for us for this podcast that detail doesn't really matter because at the end of the day a 14 year old boy was killed because a couple of 20 year old fucking idiots were so full of themselves and were so scared of what life might be without each other that they ended up committing this heinous crime that they never thought they would ever be caught for
0: right. And because they hadn't been caught for any of the other stuff that they'd been doing, they knew that their family's prestige had protected them. The family, Their families and staff knew that these two kids were up to a bunch of shit, and they just didn't care.
1: Mm-hmm. As you
0: said, there was no rap sheet. There were no arrests. There was no intervention action taken yeah. at any point as they were growing up.
1: And given their utmost stupidity, one would think that the trial would have been a slam dunk but <laughs> nothing ever changes and the Leopold and Low families because of how much money they have they hire the most high-powered criminal defense attorney in the country Clarence Darrow. Clarence would go on to infamy as one of the founding attorneys of the ACLU and he would have a bridge named after him in Jackson Park. Meredith, have you ever been to Jackson Park?
0: Of course I have, you know. (laughs) (laughs) it's right next to the University of Chicago (laughs) campus Um, and it's a great place to go for a run beautiful Mm -hmm. awesome it was created for the 1893 World's Fair and one of the World's Fair attractions is still there it's a Japanese style garden and unfortunately Mm -hmm. that Clarence Darrow Bridge has been closed for a few years the sign says that it's been closed for repairs but it's just sitting there and decaying
1: so, I used to go there a lot. I recently found out, and in a little shout out to some of our past episodes, uh Jackson Park and Wooded Island, in particular are to this day a well known cruising hot spot for cl- closeted gay men. Did you know this?
0: I did not know that, but I do <laughs> so- know that it is a place where you can buy some illicit substances.
1: Damn, so all kinds of things are happening there. Oh,
0: yeah. So I would go out there when I was still back at living wow. in Hyde Park. I would go for a run. And at one point, I was I was kidding myself. I was like, I'm going to train for a half marathon. And so on a longer run, right, I have to like get up oh. earlier to do it. So I was basically out there at sunrise and then encountering people who were still up from the night before based on their clothing. Wow. Because like, there's always a like, Are you friend? Are you foe? And like me being Mm -hmm. like a short, pudgy white woman, clearly on a morning jog, they were like, well, we're not happy about it, but, you know, we're not going to do anything. And I was like, what the fuck's going on? It (laughs) took me a little while to understand what was going on. I was like, oh, let me just change my route.
1: Well, in this case, Clarence decides that he wants to have the boys plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And he drags the court case on for over a month, okay, like that's that's unheard of in a case where you have basically a smoking gun, all right, But Meredith, given all the evidence and the proverbial smoking gun, what do you think his strategy was?
0: I really like the take that nothing but the knight has on this point that Darrow's defense was basically that Leopold and Loeb were f- suffering from affluenza. Or a sickness of being too affluent and not being able yeah. to understand what is right and what is wrong in the world.
1: Again, like we talk about affluenza like it's a new thing, right? Right. No, this has been argued in our country for the past hundred years, right? Right. Um, he's basically riffing off of this idea that yes, they they're too they have too much money to understand right or wrong. But he's also saying that they're too educated that mm-hmm. they basically have been bottle fed these concepts that they are too young to fully understand. Listen, he's a brilliant lawyer, but what he's really trying to do here, because he knows at the end of the day that they're going to get convicted, but what he's really trying to do here is he wants to keep them away from. The electric chair. He wants to make sure they do not get the death penalty. And in some ways, even though we'll find out that he loses the case, he wins. Because neither one of them get the death penalty during a time when the city of Chicago was basically shooting motherfuckers in the head and charging the family for the bullet. He delivers a closing argument, which is known to be the finest of his career, in which he says... This terrible crime was inherent in his organism, and it came from some ancestor. Is any blame attached because somebody took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life upon it? Is it hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university? Your honor stands between the past and the future. You may hang these boys. You may hang them by the neck until they are dead. But in doing it, you will turn your face toward the past. In doing it, you are making it harder for every other boy who in ignorance and darkness must grope his way through the mazes which only childhood knows. In doing it, you will make it harder for unborn children. You may save them and make it easier for every child that sometime may stand where these boys stand. You will make it easier for every human being with an aspiration and a vision and a hope and a fate. I am pleading for the future. I am pleading for a time when hatred and cruelty will not control the hearts of men. When we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all life is worth saving and that mercy is the highest attribute of man. It is basically, boys will be boys, but using, like, fucking, like, every $10 word in the fucking thesaurus, right? In the end, he loses. The boys are sentenced and sent to Joliet Prison and Stateville Prison, which, Meredith, we've been to both together.
0: Yeah, we actually talked about our visit to Stateville Correctional Center in episode four of the podcast, Right now, it's an aging facility Mm -hmm. where really violent inmates are kept. And I think that um, the ambiance that we experience going in, um, it makes sense that it existed back in 1924. On the other hand, the old Juliet Mm -hmm. prison is basically an antique these days. It closed down in 2002 and is currently trying to find a second life as a tourism spot Mm -hmm. and event venue. Yeah. So we visited that one last year and the grounds still had a bunch of photo op backgrounds like kind of cut out in Instagram opportunities from a Blues Brothers conference that they just held. So I'll see if I can find some of those photos and pop them up on the Instagram.
1: Yeah, I I have some too, so I can send them over to you. But yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of puts a little cherry on this shit Sunday, right, of what happened here. But oddly enough, Leopold and Loeb maintain their friendship throughout their time in prison. And Mm -hmm. even though they're not housed near one another, they keep up a correspondence. This, though, is where the story ends for Loeb. Loeb ends up getting killed in 1936. Two versions exist of what happened. The official version is that Loeb, who was to many people in the prison and, oddly enough, known to be gay, had sexually assaulted another inmate who killed him in self-defense. The second version was that Loeb had rebuffed a fellow inmate's sexual advances and would kill him in a rage. Meredith, which do you think the state decided was true?
0: Well, I think it was easier... To say that Loeb had been the attacker and that the other inmate acted in Uh, self-defense. Basically, Loeb at this point was an infamous child murderer. So I can see why the prison and the public would be happy to accept that story. Uh, Because if they Mm -hmm. took the other path and investigated Loeb's murder as an unprovoked attack... That would take time and money and paperwork. And from the state's perspective, they probably didn't want to justify spending taxpayer money on this when Loeb's killer is already in prison. Right? So it's kind of a why bother situation.
1: So, yes, you are completely right. This was a very political move on their part, as you would already mention, Meredith. Loeb himself, his sexuality was not actually that of a gay man. He was asexual, but the prison knew that there was enough rumors about his sexuality and the fact that his sexual relationship with Leopold was already part of court record to basically just sweep the floor and say, well, yeah, he probably was acting in self-defense, even though... The fact is that Loeb himself never would have sexually instigated something with another man because he himself did not feel that attraction. His relationship with Leopold was very much just because of the context of their friendship. It did not exist outside of those confines. Leopold also wrote in his own autobiography that he was 100% sure that Loeb was killed as a result of rebuffing sexual advances. He would publish his autobiography in 1958 under the title Life Plus 99, and that same year he would be paroled. Again, this kind of goes back to Darrow and his victory in defeat, right? Which is that the only reason why there's even a possibility for him to be paroled is because he didn't get the death sentence. So after he's paroled the next year, he sues the publishers of a book called compulsion which was written by his u chicago classmate and he's suing for defamation the case goes all the way to the illinois supreme court but he eventually loses because and here's a little free law school education for everyone there are people who are known as defamation proof and they're defamation proof because their reputations are already so horrible that it doesn't matter what else you have to say about them because their reputations are already so far down the toilet that you basically can't do any more damage. And that's what the court decided here. Leopold would eventually move to Santurce, Puerto Rico, where he marries a retired florist, earns a master's degree from the University of Puerto Rico, and would ironically publish another book called The Checklist of Birds of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. He dies in 1977 of a heart attack at the age of 66.
0: It sounds like he died in obscurity, which is, you know, it's fitting. But it does make you think. So yeah. what might have happened if this perfect crime hadn't been so quickly solved? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking probably more murders because yeah. one thing that really stood out, at least in Nothing But The Night, was how Leopold and Loeb had been pushing each other to be more bold in their less murderous crimes. So they were pushing each other on theft and arson. Yeah, The toxic relationship that they had could have similarly pushed them to commit more murder and maybe even escalate in brutality. Yeah. Unfortunately, even though they were caught right away, Leopold and Loeb did set a precedent for the ideal of a hyper-intelligent archetype serial killer that we yeah. see in pop culture today mm-hmm. before them killers had generally been considered to be impulse killers and yeah. generally considered to be like dumb monsters mm-hmm. these guys created the idea of the perfect crime even though they were unable to commit one
1: meredith that's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> i think that that like perfectly like just summarizes everything 100 percent agree Even in the title of the competitor book, uh, (laughs) Compulsion, at that time, that's what people thought serial killers were. They were just acting on impulse. They were acting on compulsion. But the fact that these two were... For the media deemed to be these geniuses who, you know, had carefully calculated this crime. Obviously, you know, they created this really destructive example, this really destructive archetype that we see being replicated to this very day. And yeah, I think they definitely would have gone on killing. They were able to find a way to keep their relationship alive through these very destructive acts and honestly they sounded like the worst kind of brats the types of brats that we went to school with that would not have stopped until they got caught Yeah. because these two knew no consequences for any other actions and listen it's sad how Loeb died but leopold got off easy in my estimation you know he did 33 years but he still had all of his family's financial resources to undo a life plus 99 years conviction. You know, we give Darrow the, you know, the props for being able to, you know, at least get his his two clients away from the death penalty, but it still takes money to launch a successful appeal. And not only did he launch a successful appeal, but he lives a semi-normal life afterwards. People just don't get to do that. The vast majority of people are not going to be able to leave the prison life and be able to just live in even obscurity, as you say, in Puerto Rico. It takes money and it takes connections. And sadly, most people do not have that. So, my advice let's just eat the rich, okay? (laughs) At this point, they are only good. (laughs) For their, you know, nutritional value that they might be able to give to the masses, but other than that, I'm closing the book on that one. Meredith, close us out.
0: All right. In the next episode, we are going to talk about another archetypal pair, Patty Colombo and her boyfriend Frank DeLuca, who set the stage for other deadly duos, even having an international influence with the Barbie <laughs> and Ken murders in Canada. Ooh la la. join us next week for a deep dive on the toxic relationship that led to the annihilation of a suburban family and some of the city's most salacious headlines thanks for listening thanks Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death was created and produced by us, Jonathan Sanchez-Leves and Meredith Halsey. Our theme music is the original Chicago blues, which was composed by James White in 1915 and performed by Katerina Storchius in 2021. Artwork is by Laura Gosdell.
1: Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible, including the friends and family who listened, gave constructive feedback, and offered advice and pointers on recording and editing. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Murderland Chicago, a deep dish of death on your podcast app. Follow us on Patreon at Murderland Chicago. And find us on Instagram at deepdishofdeath.
0: Throughout the making of this podcast, we did quite a bit of research to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, but we know that sometimes information sources contain errors, and we accept that, in conversation, we may have introduced errors to the stories. To that point, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please send any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors to us at deepdishofdeath at gmail.com.